good morning once again. Current time is 9.01 a.m. on this Wednesday, the 28th of October. And welcome to Community Pulse, your locally produced program on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri, right here on your community radio station, 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. As a reminder of our production schedule, we have live episodes coming your way right here from the downtown KOPN studios, Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. If you happen to miss those, no worries. We upload the episodes to our website, also our Facebook feed, and you can find them on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Running a little bit behind this morning because we have a most distinguished guest on today's program. Uh, Public health advocate Ginny Chadwick will be interviewing quite the public health professional. Dr. Robert Fullilove is the Associate Dean of Community and Minority Affairs at the Columbia University School of Public Health. He joins us this morning from New York. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Fullilove, for coming on um, KOPN to speak with us today. You know, I was really impacted and impressed with your presentation at the American Public Health Association conference earlier this week and know that it's such a vital topic for us to continue to talk about and when we look at what race, health, and this pandemic is looking like. So thank you for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Yeah. So in looking specifically at COVID-19 and communities of color, will you give our listeners just an understanding of what the data is looking like as far as infection rates, hospitalizations, and mortality in our communities of color? Well, depending on who's doing the reporting and depending on which data sources you use, what comes through very, very clearly is that this pandemic is exploiting all of what has been described as the social faults that dominate society here in the United States. It is largely located in poor communities of color throughout the United States. The larger the concentration of folk who are black and Latinx, the greater the likelihood that that community is suffering a very significant burden from this disease. That means that everything from the number of cases that have been reported, where the rates amongst uh, black and brown folk are roughly three times what they are with whites, up to hospitalizations and mortality rates, we're looking at a substantial disadvantage that seems to be best predicted by the race ethnicity of both the community and the person who has been infected. That suggests that we're not just looking at high rates of disease, we're looking at two other factors as well. We're looking at communities that often have very poor access to public health services and to health care. And we're also looking at communities where the nature of the work that people do and the nature of the housing that they occupy increases the likelihood that they'll be exposed to the virus. And if they're exposed in some place outside of the home, they're likely to expose folk who are in the home. We are so let's struggling. unpack that first in looking at Missouri numbers. So we often turn to an independent reported source for our COVID-19 numbers, Dr. Foley left. So to give you a picture, um, oftentimes we find that our state health department is running a bit behind in disclosing the numbers. So we go to um, a, a private individual in the state that has been collecting it. Right now he says that the state dashboard is 9,000 cases fewer than what he's identified and 214 deaths fewer but just for our listeners to update, we have 180,000 cases of COVID-19 in Missouri, and he identified um, 
uh, over 5,000 cases yesterday um, within, um, in the state. When we look at Boone County, we have, and just so you have an idea of what our demographics look like, we have 160,000 people here. We have 6,000 cases identified of COVID-19, and we had a, a big spike yesterday in that we had 104 cases reported. When we dive into our racial demographics of what's happening here in Boone County and here in Missouri, our county is 81% white um, and 8.8% black, yet we have 11% of our cases in our African-American community. And that pretty much holds true across the state. So in the state of Missouri, we have 11 0.6% African-American and 11.6% of the cases. But if you look at our death rate, our death rate is 17.7%. So there's an increase in our death rate for those in our African-American population. And so just looking at case numbers, um, we see that here in Boone County. We see that in our state, that we have higher rates in our minority population. So as you said, there's a lot of reasons for this high rate of cases. So can you start to unpack that a little bit for me? You know, obviously in our minority communities, we have higher rates of chronic disease and, and health outcomes, and we have disproportionate numbers of low income and, um, and essential workers. So talk about that a little bit. Well, all those factors are predictors for who's at risk for both contracting the virus, being hospitalized, and also perhaps uh, dying as a result of the infection and the comorbid condition. That means the other health conditions like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease that appear to be factors in aggravating the nature of the illness as it's expressed in individual patients. So we're looking at health disparities that were present before the virus got here. Black and Latin communities throughout the United States and in Missouri, I imagine, are more likely to suffer from obesity, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, a host of factors, in other words, that are often driving the high rates of hospitalization and mortality that we've seen. So the one factor is the higher presence of disease in these communities. Secondly, local color are more likely to have jobs that are public-facing. They're more likely to be essential workers. They're more likely to be in uh, meatpacking plants and other settings where maintaining social distance is very, very difficult. And as a consequence, they're much more likely to contract the virus. They will go home to largely segregated communities where they're quite likely to be in households that are overcrowded. So social distancing at home becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible. And if it's a three-generation household with kids, adults, and grandparents, you can begin to see that an exposure in that kind of setting is going to be particularly problematic for the older folk because 91% of the mortality that we associate with COVID-19 is in folk who are 55 and older. The older the age level of a given community, the greater the likelihood that those elders will be at risk for infection, at risk for being hospitalized, and at risk for dying. So all of those factors would speak rather directly to the segregated nature of our society, to the nature of the economic disadvantage where folks find themselves, and the likelihood that they're in communities that have very poor access to health care 
means that everything about our ability to manage this pandemic is going to be challenged. And you mentioned the segregation of our community, and I know that you showed me data in your presentation about, you know, the, the neighborhoods that white people live in um, and the, the demographics of those neighborhoods versus the demographics that are primarily black. Can you talk a little bit more about that? If you look carefully at the 2010 census of the United States, what you will discover, and there's extensive documentation of this, is that the U.S. is not the melting pot it often claims itself to be. It's much more a tossed salad. We in urban America are very likely to live in communities where we're like people who look like us, share our culture, share our language, share our membership in a race, ethnic minority. Uh, quoting from one of the better analyses of this from the Communities Project at Brown University, they conclude the basic message from an examination of the 2010 census is that whites live in neighborhoods with low minority representation, blacks and Hispanics live in neighborhoods with high minority representation, and relatively few white neighbors. Asians with a much smaller population in most metropolitan regions nevertheless live in neighborhoods where they are disproportionately represented. It's very clear that in settings like this, the nature of the disadvantage that individuals have will be compounded by the fact that they're surrounded by folk who are basically struggling with the same level of disadvantage. In an epidemic that involves the transmission of an infectious agent, close living quarters, close working, quarter, working quarters will definitely heighten the likelihood that transmission will occur. And if that transmission occurs in a place where there's poor access to health care, the kinds of morbidity, that is, to, that is to say the kinds of illness, and death rates that we have been observing since the beginning of this pandemic will continue. So, Dr. Foley Love, you are an expert also in understanding and knowing the impact of what's happening within our jail systems. Can you talk a little bit about that? I have, for the last 10 years, been a member and a part of the teaching faculty of the Bard College Prison Initiative, a recent film that achieved the level of two Emmy nominations, College Behind Bars, dictates what it's like to be in a prison setting where you have large numbers of incarcerated folks taking college courses. I teach public health courses there, and it's a way of saying that over a 10-year period, I've had a lot of interactions with folk inside six New York State prisons, which gives me some sense of the nature of the challenge that we face in doing epidemic control in those kinds of settings. A lot of Americans have the idea, largely from films and TV shows, that depict inmates in death row as being in cells by themselves. On paper, that looks like the perfect opportunity for social distancing. But the reality in most state prisons, and I think this is especially true in the state of Missouri, is that the prisons are often overcrowded and people live in dormitories where they're very, very packed and jammed together. That means of the 16, that means in the 16 um, areas in the United States where you have a concentrated population living together, talking about prisons, jails, and homes for the elderly, uh, 15 of the 16 of those settings are places where you're looking at prisons and the high rates of COVID-19 that are concentrated there. So it, it's a way of sort of describing that we're not just looking at what happens to the folk who are on the inside, 
We're also describing what happens to folk who work there. Very important to sort of point out that in a recent article that appeared in the journal Science, it's clear that the virus can be traced to what happens when prison staff, visitors, and just uh, incarcerated persons who are circulating, once again, provides a perfect opportunity for transmission to occur because you have a large population in motion. Yeah, to give our listeners a little bit of understanding of what's happening within the um, prison system in the state of Missouri, we have 30,337 people reported in our prison system, and that's a 276% increase from in the last three years, or sorry, 30 years. And so we um, have huge numbers. And then the Department of Corrections does have a COVID-19 dashboard. Right now they are reporting that 1,006 inmates currently have active cases. And as you just mentioned, you know, that's not just in the prison system, but that's we have 340 staff who have active COVID-19 right now as well. Um, of all of the um, prison facilities that we have in the state of Missouri, um, there has been active cases reported in every single one of them. Um, we have conducted some tests in the inmates, so so far we've conducted 49,000 tests. But, you know, just recently there was a jail um, outbreak in St. Louis County. They had um, 32 that tested positive, and so they did test all of their 898 inmates. But we've seen over the last two weeks that data has become a whole lot less transparent. What do you know about testing going on within um, our prison systems, and is it enough, and what more can we do? Well, it's not just that. It varies terrifically depending on the state. As you pointed out, we're also struggling with getting some kind of acknowledgement that these rates need to be reported. It's instructed to indicate that uh, a June study that appeared in the public health journal Health Affairs documented that in Illinois, by mid-April, 15.7% of the cases of COVID-19 in the state of Illinois were associated with people who were moving through the Cook County Jail. So it becomes very clear that we're not just talking about folk who are on the inside locked up or even the staff. We're talking about the level of circulation that occurs and the inability of us who are working with this population to convince a lot of the governors or departments of corrections that more needs to be done, for example, with aging inmates who are at particular risk not just of contracting the virus, but of being hospitalized and dying from it. If it becomes necessary to put somebody who's in a jail or a prison in a hospital, you can imagine the political pressures that are created when folk in the community say, hey, what are you doing taking care of folk who've been convicted of a crime? What about us? So there are enormous political pressures. They have everything to do with how much we are doing to identify cases and treat them. But they also have everything to do with how much the circulation in and out of these facilities is also helping transmit the virus to other populations that are not at all engaged with any of the issues that surround a jail or a prison. It becomes a really tangled situation. And it does show how much we live in a system in the United States where all of the seemingly disparate parts of our lives, prisons are way off somewhere in a rural area but they still impact us no matter what. And helping people understand this and helping folks see how COVID-19 has made this 
one of the more urgent realities, what are we going to do about incarcerated populations, is, it seems to me, a very significant public health priority. And I know that our court system has been delayed because of COVID-19. We have gone in and out of holding in-person court. We have um, done some Zoom court. Um, have, have you seen that have an impact or, or, or even further thoughts on the court system in this pandemic? Well, part of what we've seen is that in the city of New York, where I'm currently speaking, the decision was made that has very significant consequences for our nation's commitment to mass incarceration, in which folk were told, question whether or not somebody needs to be arrested, question whether or not this person needs to go to jail, question whether or not we need to have somebody show up for a court date. Those kinds of decisions resulted in a dramatic drop in the number of arrests and the number of incarcerations that were associated with moderate levels of criminal action in many, many communities. Now, in some places, with all the violence that's associated with protests having to do with police killings, some of that has been changed. But in large, most urban municipal jail facilities have been aware of the fact that you don't need to pack a setting that has a lot of people living together. And as a consequence, they've done what they can to both reduce the size of jail and prison populations as well to reduce the number of cases that come to trial. And that necessitate once more people getting together in a congregate setting where the virus can be transmitted. So there has been some very clear progress made. There might be more if we had a better handle on the nature of the data that is coming out of these kinds of facilities, and we're in a position to use that data to make very good decisions about how to lessen the impact of this pandemic. So we're seeing a trend that I see as very positive, but it's nowhere near as much as I think could and should be, especially when you understand how much of this pandemic is taking advantage of the congregate settings the jails and prisons represent. And I think that, you know, we in public health advocate for huge structural changes, and, and I am heartened to see that some of those are being made. Um, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Other Drugs section did put out a decriminalization of tobacco products document in this process that, you know, the commercial tobacco products and the enforcement of such should never be a criminal penalty, and law enforcement should not be included in any enforcement of tobacco control was the statement that the um, section put out. And when we think about structural changes and things that need to happen, I know within our city, we have gone back and forth about utility disconnections. And, um, you know, we have a a food bank here in the county um, and food pantry that's providing um, food for those in need. But can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted communities of color when we talk about food insecurity and um, rent Yeah, Uh, very clear that, um, once again, in these communities, you have a major, major issue that has to be confronted. Uh, Rates of unemployment in such communities are going to be higher than they are in mainstream communities. The folk who are struggling with the payment of rent or struggling with payment on a mortgage is likely to be much higher in poor communities of color. And the folk who are described that they're living with food insecurity are also folk who are struggling. Um, Some of the data that I presented in the conference that you described indicates that when it comes to 
food insufficiency. Um, in a survey that was done by the Census Bureau and the Housing Pulse study, 18% of all black families surveyed indicated that they were struggling with food insufficiency. It was 17% amongst Latin folks, but it was only 7% amongst whites, suggesting once again, this is a pretty severe health disparity. When it, we asked people about issues related to their rents, nationally, one in six renters are not caught up on their rent, but amongst black families, that number is 26%. Amongst Latinos, it's 19%, and amongst whites, it's 11%. So we're already starting to see economic fallout from the pandemic. That is likely to persist long after we sound the all clear about our struggles with this virus. The likelihood that these will engender rather permanent levels of disadvantage in these communities also means that the struggles to provide appropriate health to these communities is going to be weakened. Folk who need a job to pay for their health insurance are suddenly discovering that they not only don't have jobs, but their needs for health care have been increased. So we are looking at a very scary scenario nationwide. And I imagine in places like Missouri, it is perhaps even more pronounced than is the case here. Yeah, we only recently expanded Medicaid by an August election um, ballot initiative. And so we know that there's significant rates of uninsured people in the state of Missouri. And you mentioned essential workers. I want to dive into that just a little bit more because I think sometimes listeners don't understand that, you know, we have exemptions or allow essential workers that even if they're directly exposed to COVID-19, they're required to come back to work, so our teachers and our healthcare workers. And you mentioned that we see um, communities of color in higher rates of um, positions of essential workers. So talk a little bit more about that. Well, again, what makes them essential is the degree to which working at home is simply not possible. So folk who have what are described as public-facing jobs, jobs in New York City that involve driving buses or being somebody who manages as a conductor of the subway system. These are all folks that absolutely drive the economy of a place like New York City. They, too, are absolutely required to show up to work, which means that the likelihood their presence in the public will expose them to the virus is pretty extensive. And as a consequence, it's one of the sources of risk. Uh, the folk who are least likely to be exposed, of course, are folk who are able to work from home and who can limit the amount of circulation they do in the community and can have the possibility of exercising appropriate social distancing when it's called upon. This is not often the case with folk who are public-facing workers, who are essential workers, where everything about what they do involves facing the public and therefore having extended levels of exposure. So um, the idea is that this might become a factor that contributes to drive the pandemic has to be considered because whatever it is we're trying to do to keep business and industry open today, it's also the case that forcing folk into settings like this means that the virus will be with us for an extended period of time. It's not going to disappear by the end of the year. It's probably not going to disappear by the end of 2021. And one of the factors that will keep it present in our community is the fact that if we continue to have essential workers exposed to the virus, we're continuing to assure the virus that it will always have a place in our society and will always have the possibility 
of infecting others and making sure that it is maintained as an ever-present reality in our lives and in our efforts to control the health of all the folk who live in this country. We're and really I think saying, that you are really, you know, when we think about looking to the future of what's going to happen and you state, you know, this virus isn't going away in 2020, that there's not a magic bullet as, you know, we have heard our current administration say it's coming. Uh, can you talk about vaccines um, a little bit? Because I know that there's been, um, you know, struggles with getting um, individuals of color to, to be a part of the trial of the vaccine. And there's clear and, and reasons for mistrust in, in the public health system when it comes to vaccine research and, and the idea of using the vaccine. You're absolutely right that there's a great deal of suspicion. But I'm heartened to report as somebody who exists and serves on a COVID-19 vaccine trial panel that was specifically set up to have researchers like me who represent communities of color present to sort of comment and critique some of the plans that are currently in place to get phase three vaccine trials up and running. Some of them have done very well recruiting black, Latinx, and elderly members of our community to be a part of these trials. I think the issue is less can we get appropriate representation for a clinical trial, and much more, will people trust a vaccine once it has been produced? Recent data suggests that throughout the United States, not just in poor communities of color, folks are very worried about a vaccine that they perceive to have been rushed into production. And it is clear that many of the trials won't have any usable data until the middle of 2021. And it's not that clear that what we will have is what we need, which is an effective vaccine that does the job of halting the likelihood that someone will be infected. So there are many factors that are dominating how much and how well a vaccine will help us get out of the problems associated with this pandemic. But if most Americans are suspicious of it and won't take it, no matter how good the vaccine, we're still going to have a problem. And this is chronic. This is ongoing. And so how do we get the communities to engage? What, what do we need to do from here to move forward in, in your world of getting this pandemic under control? I've been well aware when I talk to some of the folks that are in my classes in prison, that their advice is really good because they are sometimes able to be in contact with the communities from which uh, they came, and they're aware of how suspicious people are of what's going on. Their advice was really good. They said if much of what is driving this epidemic are high levels of chronic disease and other health disparities in our community, the last thing you want to do to create trust in a vaccine is make it appear as if the only thing you're doing to help the health of my community is to give me a vaccine that's going to make <clears throat> somebody in the pharmaceutical industry rich. There have to be efforts, visible efforts, to deal with all of the factors in the health of these communities that are contributing to the force of COVID-19. Tackle those problems visibly and have as a part of that tackling some effort to distribute a vaccine, and you're much more likely to have success. But if it's only the only thing we're going to do is make sure that you have access to the vaccine, that might not be enough to engender the levels of trust that a lot of people need to see in order to be a part of such an effort. Dr. Foley-Love, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom. In these last two minutes, any final thoughts 
um, as we move forward on containing this virus and, and move into a very important election here on November the 3rd? I think more than anything else, part of what is being tested on November 3rd is the trust that people have in science as a way of helping us guide our way out of this horrible mess. I think that the one message that I think has to be shared is people have to have trust in the notions that when someone in public health says wear a mask, practice social distancing, there's a vaccine that's safe, take it. We should do all that we can to communicate those messages to our families and to our neighbors because part of what is going to help us succeed is a unified effort that doesn't just involve public health and medical professionals. It involves citizens. They have to be involved. They're going to vote and demonstrate real solidarity as taking part in our democracy. That solidarity ought to be extended to efforts to control COVID-19. Dr. Bob Love from Columbia University, Associate Dean of Community and Minority Affairs, thank you so much for joining us here at KOPN. Back to you in the studio, Peter. And thank you very much, Ginny. We've just been listening to public health advocate Ginny Chadwick interview Dr. Uh, Robert Fullilove. He is the Associate Dean of Community and Minority Affairs at Columbia University, and he was so kind enough to join us from New York City this morning. If you happen to miss part of the most intriguing discussion, as a reminder, you can find it on our website, kopn.org, kopn.org, our Facebook profile a little bit later today, along with some links, and also Apple and Spotify podcasts. That wraps it up for this edition of Community Pulse. The next time that we will be coming to you live will be Monday at 9 a.m. Until then, as we often like to stay, please stay safe. Please stay informed. If you find yourself having COVID symptoms, get tested immediately. And don't forget that cheerful confidence that your body in most likely has the capacity to fight off infection. Thanks so much for joining us here on your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. 51% is next. A pleasant weekend to you, Columbia.